Welcome to 353rd. I'm Anders Brownworth. And I'm Scott Barstow. How you doing, Scott? How are things? Things are great, Anders. Uh, we are listening to London Calling by The Clash as our uh, theme music for this week. As, uh, as we talked about last week, we are um, on Amnesia Lane. We're talking about the hunt for Red October yes. and the Cold War. And <coughs> this song just felt, uh, felt appropriate. You may or may not know that during World War II, London Calling was the BBC sign-off. Really, uh, and that's where that's where the phrase came from. And the Clash actually wrote this song uh, in the midst of the Three Mile Island disaster here in the U.S. And oh. it was it was a bit of a doom and gloom message. They felt like the they felt like that you know, the Western society was slipping over the edge, uh, and that Armageddon was imminent. And so it was, uh, it was just this song about uh, doom and uh, and the end of the the end of western civilization so i felt like i felt like it was a pretty interesting tie-in to uh, to the cold war and to this week's movie i did i did not know that and i but i remember the the sentiment of the time um so yeah wow good times that it brings me back though i gotta say <laughs> this yeah, song. it's such good, a great song good times anyway lots of angst yeah lots of angst <laughs> Uh, so, uh, this week in Rewind, uh, we let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about a couple of things that have, uh, that have happened. We've got, uh, Google Wallet. Um, you know, they give you 10 bucks to try it out. Did you, did you try this out at all, Scott? I haven't tried it out yet. I haven't, I haven't, uh, I haven't signed up and gotten my free $10, $10 thing. Um, <laughs> what, what do you think about it? I mean, I don't know. I feel about this. I feel about this uh, a lot the same way I felt about uh, that. I feel about uh, near field communication and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting, but it's only interesting when it's ubiquitous. When it's got critical mass. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and so I, 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 while I applaud the effort, I just wonder. There's a couple of things that annoy me about it, quite frankly. One is that you have to put money on their prepaid thing, um, really? unless yeah, unless so they've got this Google prepaid card that you can fund your with your card, yeah. um, and so it's either that or you have to have a City Mastercard. Really? Yeah, and so I don't get why. I mean, I'm sure City Mastercard probably paid a lot sure, to, make, yeah, to be the exclusive, sort of right? Deal. But yeah, <clears throat> but it, I, I find that just mildly annoying. So it's it's not it's not agnostic like I feel like it should be. You don't ever get this kind of message from a company like Square, uh, yeah. where it's sure. you know just uh, we'll take anything from anybody kind of feel. Uh, yeah, it's the difference between a, uh, a concentration on the consumer experience and a concentration on what kind of deals can we get in place, maybe. Yep, I think that's right. Yeah. So, uh, I, but I, you know, on the other hand, Google's obviously very successful. But, you know, uh, well, I guess it's it's fair to say that uh, two or three of their products are very successful. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, these kinds of products from them historically have not done well. Yeah. So I think it'll yeah. be interesting to see. Yeah, you know, it's when you read the statistics about or the you know the the financials about where Google makes their money. They make no money anywhere except in ads. Yeah. And so, and they have they have yet to have, with the exception of potentially Gmail, they have yet to have a product that is considered to be you know best in breed. Yeah. Um, in any other space. So. Well, what about Android? I mean, you know, they, you might you might say that that's possibly there. Not, not like they're making the money though. No. It's not a cash cow. <laughs> Neither is it isn't. Well, Google Apps. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? I, I the thing know. is with Google Wallet, I think it's a it's a good uh, reuse for the Google Wave logo. 
that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty much where I am with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that they will get um, nigh into little adoption. Yeah, my, yeah. Uh, until, well, we'll see, until, you know. Until you can pay with this, until I can pay for stuff at my grocery store with it. Yeah. Uh, you know, where it's that kind of penetration or at the gas station or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and I think they do have... Uh, you know, I think you can pay for it anywhere where you where they take the pay pass, uh, where you take a pay pass. But I don't know. I, I'm yeah. just not. I'm not fired up about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But I, you know, they're giving everybody ten bucks that signs up for it. I wonder mm-hmm. if they've even given away a million bucks. Really? <laughs> well, we'll see. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so the other one, the other one that was interesting this past week is uh, Get Around. Um, yes. Yes. One of my they, new favorite companies. Yeah. They they won the the TechCrunch thing, and 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 what was I reading? They they were. Uh, they had already amassed in like a couple of days about ten percent of the Zipcar fleet in yeah, terms of numbers. Yeah, so you and I, as as you well know, we talked about this. Uh, we talked about this company a few weeks uh, a few weeks back. I forget what the episode was. I think it was episode two or three. Yeah, um, I should know that, but I don't. Uh, and <laughs> and so I think uh, you I'm don't gonna, listen to our I, old episodes uh, over and over on repeat. No, I don't. Okay, I know, well, that's, I don't, that's I don't unlike our listeners. I don't have them playing as okay. as I as I fall asleep, um, which is probably like our listeners. They probably do listen to them yeah. as they fall asleep. Puts them to sleep. Yeah, good that's point. right. So the uh, the, the thing I the thing I was really fired up about is um, you know we, we 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 talked about them. I think it was two weeks ahead of the TechCrunch thing, and they yeah. just got they got a ton of great press out of that. It's a really cool company, and if you uh, if you haven't uh, if you haven't spent any time on their site, I think they'll be coming. It'll be interesting to me. To see how they do, and we talked about this in our show, how they do in a city like Raleigh, North Carolina. Yeah, uh-huh. you know, yeah, where you're, where you've got the commuter population, and you know, not everybody's riding the subway to work and that sort of stuff. And I'm really interested to see because you know Raleigh doesn't have a Zipcar, uh, yeah, you know, install here, and so it'll be interesting to me. You know, how can can they? penetrate kind of this uh, suburban wasteland of America. Yeah, well, that would be a virgin market for them versus, you know, competing against Zipcar. But it, it seems like all the places that get around is going is where Zipcar already is. Yes, so, so far. Yep. So far, yeah. Yeah, I bet that'll probably change. Yeah, um, but great, great company. Yeah. Uh, I'm hoping they do well. Yeah. So, uh, so moving on, Mac Defender. Uh, that yes. was also a big deal in the, the news this past week. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, at the risk of uh, setting you up, uh, the Mac Defender virus, as it's called. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not a virus. Come on, it's malware. I mean, a virus is something that that you know deletes data and and you know doesn't uh, you know takes no prisoners. This seems like just something relatively innocuous that pops Windows up, blah blah blah. But the important thing is here. For, for, for better or worse, people are definitely labeling it a virus and labeling it the first successful Mac virus. That's right. I, to me, that's why it was newsworthy is, is not because uh, of the distinction between malware and, and a virus. But I think the, it'll be interesting to see as there's just more and more mainstream adoption of Mac as the desktop. And I, you know, I look at trends like... Uh, who in my family is using Mac yeah. uh, versus who in my family is using Windows. And when I see, you know, my brother who, uh, who has no idea about how to get around a computer really um, adopting Mac OS as his operate as his OS of choice to me that you've hit, 
you know, you were on. Now we're on the. Uh, now we're you know we're on the downhill ride of the of the roller coaster. It's just, and so that's why I think we're going to see it targeted more with uh, with malware. Yeah, people are definitely coming over in droves to think about my family. There's not a single person without a Mac in my immediate family. Not a single one. But uh, I, I suppose my my aunt and uncle use a uh, use a PC. But outside of that, it's pretty much Mac all around. And so so I do see this coming, but I still see this as uh, social engineering more than anything else. Um, so, so what's your take on how, uh, so if you're an average user and you know, you've dealt with Windows viruses for the last 20 years, yeah. and then just the always having to have you know Norton or something on it that just bogs the machine down. Yeah. What do you feel like is the, is the hope for the average user? Well, I don't think, I, I think uh, uh, you're never going to run uh, virus software on a Mac. Uh, and that, that's kind of people, you know, it's a dangerous thing to say. Uh, I think, you know, there will always be social engineering kinds of things, but I see when the uh, Mac App Store, things like that really start to become the, the way that you get applications, the uh, less and less chance of the social engineering uh, type app kind of shows up. But, you know, we'll see. I, I think in the long run, the, the fact of the matter is uh, Mac OS X is effectively essentially Unix. Yes. Um, and, and that's the critical difference between uh, uh, the Windows setup and, and the way Mac OS X is set up. Uh, Windows is set up uh, so that you can write directly to cards. So it's, it's faster, you know. You can write yep. directly to cards. It's probably better for gaming. You can, uh, you know, do things at a higher performance level, blah, blah, blah. Because with Mac, there's always a uh, layer. You're always talking through an API to get to the hardware, so it's intrinsically going to be just slightly slower. Uh, however, on the other hand, it's just so much easier to shut the gate down on nefarious uses of, uh, you know, just jumping under the system and doing whatever you want, playing, you know, havoc with the uh, the OS and the way things are set up. It's just a, a fundamentally different thing, and it's not... I, I've had this argument with others about, you know, they, everybody's saying that uh, the Windows has been such a target for uh, virus writers for such a long time because it's the most popular platform. Of course, people will target the Mac and there will be, you know, viruses, but they will, I don't think it'll ever reach the stage where it was with Windows. Um, yeah, I agree. I think you're right about that. Because of the structure. Yeah. I think you're right about that. And I think you're right about the the App Store. You know, Microsoft is heading that same direction with how to distribute their applications. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, so if you want to buy Office or you want to buy, you know, the next Microsoft app or whatever it is, you've, it's a very similar process to the App Store where it's – what I don't know is if, you've, if, the, if they've got the same sort of vetting process that Apple does where the, Apple's gotta, where the app has got to be reviewed and it's, you, know, you go through a process that I think discourages most – Malware. If you look at what it's done in particular for, so if you take the, um, you know, the Windows or sorry, the Mac desktop experience and equip and and draw a parallel with the iPhone, yeah, uh, which I think you can. And the one of the <clears throat> one of the things that's made the iPhone so successful, in my opinion, is that it is locked down, and unless you unless you crack the phone, you know, you really can't get at what's going on in the core of of the iPhone, yeah. and I think you've got the same sort of parallel here with with OS X, where you're going to have a distribution mechanism in the App Store that uh, that users will feel some amount of security in getting apps from that store, knowing that it's at least gone through some process. And then you've also got you know the rating process, and if somebody installs an application and it 
put some malware on their machine, I can guarantee you that'll be the first thing that goes up on the review boards, right? Yeah, so, sure. Yeah. So I think it's 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 a, it's a vastly different time than you know the late '90s when Windows was just being bashed with viruses. Yeah. So I think the critical difference here is: will Microsoft follow the Android market uh, uh, model or the Apple market model, where you you have to be okayed before you're let in versus anybody is let in and then you just get shut down like it is with the yes. uh, Android store. That's a question. And and the other the other comment I had about this is uh, it'll be very interesting to see if uh, either Apple or Microsoft or both uh, decide to go to a, a, a system where you can either set it up this way or just is this way. The only way to get software is through the uh, Mac App Store or the Window, uh, you know, Microsoft App Store or whatever it happens to be. Yes. If they actually make that, you know, cut. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting. So if you think about the the possibility of your kids having uh, a Mac. Uh, you know, MacBook Pro or something like yeah. that, and being able to configure it to say uh, this app, you know, you can't install, you can't download and install, and furthermore, you can only download applications that are not rated adult or not rated yeah. whatever or whatever those things are. It gives you intrinsic control without having to have you know net nanny and all this other blather that goes that you have to have on a completely open machine. So yeah. I think that they, uh, if you still want the open machine, I think that that option should be available. Uh, you know, if you know what you're doing and that sort of thing, but yeah, uh, you know, that brings me to another point. It, it it just may not matter because your 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 grandfather or whatever, you're going to end up just getting him an iPad. I mean, yeah, that's it's, true. It's locked down as is. You can do email. You can surf the web. You can watch video. Whatever. You know, what else do you need? I mean, yeah, you can get to Google Docs if you got to create a doc. Yeah. You know, you can hook up a keyboard to it sure. if you need to. So. What's uh, I think you may be right. Yeah. I think the, uh, that's a that's an interesting point. So then the only people, it. yeah, the only people that'll actually be using uh, uh, traditional laptops are, are coders or really people that are are sort of they have a real reason for a for a full fledged machine. Yes, um, you know yeah, they, they yeah, use there was a guy, yeah there was a guy at Semantic that was a yeah. that was a senior director at Semantic when I was there that when he traveled he traveled with his iPad only. Really, and he had a yeah, and so he took out. I mean, this was a guy that ran a software development team, mm. and he ran the whole thing when he was on the road from his iPad. He'd pull out his iPad. He had a little stand for it hooked up. His he had a you know one of the little little keyboards. Yeah, and he would just sit there and bang away. And that, that was good was, enough. That was good enough. Wow. So what did he use? Like, he didn't use. Uh, did he use the the uh, iLife uh, or iWork? Uh, you know, productivity stuff, or did he use like Google Docs and all? Um, so I believe you know most of his work was uh, was mail. So yeah. he just had like a webmail, you know, webmail client to get right. to to get to Semantics webmail, and and most and then he had. I'm not sure what he used for for Docs. I would assume it was you know Google Docs or something like that. Or if he needed to do you know a bit more intense editing, yeah. I don't know if he had yeah. the had the you know the iLife suite in there or what. So. Yeah. That's oh, very interesting. I mean, I see it more and more. So, so news. Uh, uh, there's there's some interesting stuff. This is this just follows right along with what we're talking about. The uh, there are a couple of stories recently, uh, last day or two, about uh, Android and uh, iOS market share. There's one just this morning about how Android game the gains seem to have uh, uh, slowed or maybe stalled. Um, and it's turned into this, at least temporarily, a three-party system, RIM, Apple, and Google. Um, 
So what's the what's the source of that data? Where'd you where'd you read about that this? Was, I'm uh, that was that uh, was oh gosh, now you're gonna make me remember. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's Seeking Alpha. Uh, okay, yeah, it, but it, it's very interesting. You know, we can pop the link to it in the show notes. Um, but it, it, I thought it was really interesting. It was some uh, they were quoting a study. I can't remember who the original uh, uh, research firm was that did the study, uh, but. Uh, yeah, some some interesting things from that. They were talking about uh, the amount of data usage. So Android users, uh, obviously more technical, uh, averaging in at uh, 582 megs uh, per month. Apple iPhone uh, users were somewhere around 492 megs. Uh, and then the BlackBerry uh, came in in an absolutely whopping 127 megs, um, which given the fact that the device is kind of light on the... Uh, uh, you know, media, entertainment sort of end of things is maybe not so surprising. Yeah, Um, I mean, the the RIM is really, they're a business-only company anymore. You know, and and they're barely that. Yeah, they're barely that, right. The thing is, like, I I just, it's it's sort of like watching an, an enormous... Uh, you know, train with two locomotives and and a hundred cars or whatever it is, just just run off the rails and and plow into the side of a hill or something. Yeah, it, it's, it really is. It's, ha- it's awful to watch, but you have to watch it. It's compelling. It's, yeah, the thing I don't get is if you remember, I mean, four or five years ago, pre iPhone, everybody carried a, a yeah. BlackBerry. Everybody. Yeah. You couldn't. I mean, there was no other choice because. It seems, it, yeah. And, and they've somehow managed to go from that. And this is a lesson, I think. It's a great lesson to when you're in technology, how quickly things can change. And that pace will be even greater as we go forward. Yeah. Just this idea that you can go from complete and utter dominance to being irrelevant in five years. And yeah, in less. I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> three. I mean, like, like when did when did when did RIM start its slide? It was you know, it, it's actual major slide. It's less than a year ago. I mean, it's, you yes. know, in terms of, because uh, you, you could argue that they were hanging on a little bit as the smartphone segment, you know, was exploding. Well, and they um, really, they held a good, they held good position until, uh, you know, you had things like exchange support for the iPhone that were, that were late in coming, mm-hmm, yep. things like that, that allowed them to hang on to the business segment. But I'm in more and more meetings with, I mean, I was, I, I'm in meetings with Microsoft Gold Partners, and everybody at the table has an iPhone. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, three years ago, that would, that would, they, they would have all been Blackberries. There have been Blackberries, not like Windows Mobile. Remember Windows Mobile or whatever they call it, 6.0, which had... Yeah, who cares? Like, yeah, who cares? It was, it was just... <laughs> I, it was laughable. It was just That's awful. Yeah, 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 anyway. It was just awful. So, so one of the things we were talking about was, uh, uh, you know, the price point. Um Particularly the the 3GS. Now I wasn't aware of this, but apparently you can get a, a iPhone 3GS, which is a great phone for forty nine bucks. That's right. So uh, as you know, I, up until the the last gosh, when you were down here last in Raleigh, yeah. I was still carrying my 3G. Oh yeah, I remember that. We uh, we crashed a helicopter with my <laughs> iPhone right. four. That's right. It was wonderful. So, so in uh, about three or four weeks ago, I had just had enough. Yeah, and so I went to the, but I don't, but I didn't want to spend a bunch of money on an f- iPhone four because uh, because of the rumors of the five, mm-hmm. and so I went to AT and T and bought 
a 3GS for 49 bucks. That's and the only catch, the only yeah. catch is that you've got to re-up for two years. Yeah. But if you're an AT&T, I'm, I mean, I have no reason to move to Verizon where I am because it's AT&T coverage is just as good here as Verizon, uh, at least in my experience. I've had people with Verizon that say, that say it's lousy here as many as I've had with AT&T. It's not like you're in a, you're not in New York where Verizon's yeah. got the chokehold on the more on the market. And, so yeah, I have a. I bought a forty nine dollar phone, and it's a. It's it's just phenomenal. That's and it, and for That's the cool. average guy that doesn't care about you know the Retina screen display or, or any of those kind of things that the four has, I mean this is a, just an awesome business. At that phone. price point, it's it's a crossover between a feature phone, you know, kind of craft yeah. flip phone, whatever, yep. to the smartphone. It's a gateway drug, really. I agree. I mean, you know, yeah, what's the difference? I mean, you have a front-facing camera and a retina display with a 4, right? And then it, the build quality is better. It's kind of metal and glass instead yeah. of glass, metal, and plastic. So um, so it's significantly, you know, it's really significantly advanced in everything except for some tiny little things that you probably wouldn't notice if, the, if this is your first entry into the smartphone segment. Yes, and if you think about... The uh, if you think about the, the you know somebody buying a phone for you know their their fourteen year old daughter well I think a year ago or six months ago before you know before AT and T offered this deal and I'm sure it's just to get rid of excess inventory is all I can figure yeah but before they offered this deal you know you would have gone and bought your you would have bought your kid a you know the cheap Android phone or you would have bought them you know something to do texting or just enough for them to get by yeah. And, but why wouldn't you spend forty nine bucks now? Uh, get a get the low end data plan, and you're and you've got an instant. You know, you got a homing device for your kid. It's essentially at that point. Yeah, that, yeah. Just it, it's it's all very very hard to argue against. But I, I do I I worried that it was the same kind of a move as what happened with the Razor. Remember the Motorola yeah, Razor? Yeah, I sure which, do. That put that company like right on top of the mobile market for a while there, and then suddenly, you know, they were coming out with razor after razor, and the the price basically went down to free. Forty nine dollars is pretty darn close to free. Yeah, Um, it's it's as close as it's ever going to get. Yeah, but the the difference is with the the three GS is. It, it's not fundamentally changed. I mean, the 3GS is like a couple of years old. I mean, that's a relatively ancient phone, given the, you know, but, but it, I got to say, it's like right there with with uh, uh, the 4 in terms of, of capabilities. I mean, there's marginal, uh, you know, improvements. I'd be hard to argue that the Retina display, while great, and I certainly uh, appreciate it, is like a make-or-break feature. It's hard yeah. to argue that. Yeah, I think so. for most people, they wouldn't. They probably wouldn't notice the difference. Yeah, and uh, so as, anything else on this on this on this topic of Android and I, I, it, it, the thing that I don't that I don't understand uh, in this whole thing is where or how does Google where does this become a a product that they make a pile of cash at? Yeah. And yeah. It, we were kind of talking about it before when we were talking about the fact that you know with Google Wallet. You know, will it really do anything? But I get, I get that they're, you know, that's this open source effort, and mm-hmm. but at some point they've NFC. got, they've got to start making money. NFC, that's what I got to say. Near field communications. I don't know. I mean, but that's the, that has the it's same a deployment problem. problem, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but it's it's it it's hard for me to understand. I mean, it's it's great that they've got the money to be able to do it. 
and uh, and to fund uh, this you know just this hugely successful project by any measure except financial. Okay, so 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 back in the day, I remember uh, peddling the streets of New York City. Uh, this must have been uh, 1994, 95 times, something like that. I'm peddling the streets of New York pretty much carting around a, a, a desktop computer, bringing it into offices. I, I was at uh, Ralph Lauren, for example, and I was showing them the web. And they were like, you know, w- after the whole spiel and, and all of this, I was basically, you know, a web developer. They said, what can the Internet do for me? Basically saying something that they totally missed it. And the only way I could bring them in was by sh- by equating what I was doing with something else that they had. And in this case, it was color brochures. Well, this is a color brochure that you can change whenever you want. And, uh, you know, people can get it for free. You're basically, your your distribution cost is, uh, you know, just very, very tiny. And yeah, so sure. that, was the, that was the transition for them. But they had to think of it as a... Uh, as a color brochure, and then you then you see advertising. It was the same kind of thing. It's like just like a magazine ad, but on a website, yep. right? And so I think what's happened right now, we have mobile phones, and the advertising we see is is like kind of old school web advertising slapped into an app somewhere. Yeah, and yeah, you've got it's this. Still, it's like the old, it's the old style. It's just a, it's a banner ad yeah. inside a inside a mobile app. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's broken. It's just not done right. And I don't, I, you know, Google when when they get it, they will they will flip on a dime and and you know make it work. And suddenly, I think this will be a viable platform. But until they do that. Until you're just copying the old model, it's either going to be a really, really kind of low revenue type thing because who who wants to be interrupted in the middle of an app uh, with an ad that's totally irrelevant? I mean, they've got to do something like what they did in search, which, uh, you know, I'll actually go to Google to be advertised to because I, I if I've got something that I want right then, I can just type it into Google and then I see an ad having to do with that rather than what, you know, happened with television. You've got to sit there, and, you know, sit through the same ad, you know, five times over in, in the course of a show or two. I mean, it was just broken. It still is broken. So I yeah. think once they figure that out for the, the, uh, the handheld, maybe that'll change. The question is, is it going to be advertiser supported or is it going to be something else with the data in the back end uh, and that has its own dicey you know uh, privacy concerns as well um, but in any case uh, we should move on so uh, I, I was down there in North Carolina at some point and, uh, and uh, I cracked my iPhone 4 and it just just destroyed the thing um, because we were messing around with drones um, yes, <laughs> and uh, why? Why are, why are you talking? Tell, why, you set this up. Tell, tell me what the opportunity is with drones. Tell me about drones. Well, I think the so you've been in a you've been involved in it a lot more a lot longer than I have. But I, as when I was up there last June or whatever that was, and we were sitting out at that outdoor cafe, yeah, and we were having lunch, and and you said, "What if you could replace FedEx with?" unmanned aerial vehicles what if you could do package delivery without having to fly everything into you know hubs and navigate that whole leviathan 
uh, of you know spoken hub kind of methodology. And when you said it, I thought, well, that's just freaking crazy. Nobody's <laughs> nobody's doing that. You know, that's not possible for eighteen hundred reasons. And uh, and then, but as the, the longer we sat there and the longer we talked about it, the more the more it made sense. And it turns out that you've got this just huge community of people doing interesting things in drones. And I think the <clears throat> what makes it interesting for me is that uh, is that nobody's really talking about it mainstream yet. Yeah. It's all, and we've talked about this, that the the effort in drones is still very much in labs or in, uh, you know, it's in these, uh, you know, you've got it at Penn or you've got it at Stanford or you've got it at MIT in the labs there where these guys are just doing insane things with with robots and drones, but there's really no commercial, there's no commercial play yet. Yeah. And so the that's what makes it compelling to keep an eye on, in my opinion, is this, yeah. you've got... Because the technology is there, as you know, you can buy a Parrot AR drone and fly it with your iPhone for three hundred bucks. Yeah, that's I mean, pretty compelling. It, yeah, I mean, it, it, the amount of technology that's baked into the Parrot AR drone for three hundred bucks is just ridiculous. It is. I and and so okay. So I've got a story. So this is what this is what got me into this, and I've been the you know. This has been percolating in the back of my mind for a very long time. Back in uh, 2001 or 2002, I think it was 2002, um, there's this guy, his name is Maynard Hill, uh, and he's uh, in Maryland. This guy's uh, legally blind. He's uh, uh, sort of a, you know, a tinker with radio-controlled uh, airplanes and balsa wood and glue and this kind of thing. And he got this idea in his head that he wanted to make a radio-controlled airplane that he could fly off of a field, put, turn on an autopilot, fly it across the Atlantic, and land it in uh, Ireland. Um, That's crazy amazing. idea. Yeah. Back, you know, back in the day. So, I mean, you know, this is, this is a, a, you know, ancient, ancient history in terms of uh, uh, some of these things. He, he got this idea as soon as uh, uh, 95 or 4, whenever well, the GPS system kind of came out, realized that this this was going to become a possibility. So he built this airplane. Um, it weighed 11 pounds. Uh, half of that was fuel. That has to do the 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 weight limit actually was was uh, dictated by the, the uh, uh, you know, little kind of industry group or whatever that that monitors uh, radio-controlled airplanes. They say you can't go above 11 pounds. So he, he builds this airplane. Half of it is fuel, flies along at 1,000 feet, and, uh, you know, just, he tuned this little four-cylinder engine that, that he got off of eBay from, you know, it's a really old one, out-of-production thing, to fly for 39 hours and 52 minutes. Uh, and he flew it. Uh, from from you know the the North American continent over to Europe, uh, in in you know just over a day and and landed it on uh, you know on the ground there in in um, Ireland. That's uh, just amazing. It's an incredible feat, and it happened right about the same time that the hundredth uh, anniversary of the Wright brothers. Remember that down in North Carolina? I sure do. That that basically completely overshadowed this story. So he got like no press out of it. That's interesting. It blew my mind because now here's something where you can say, "We're here, go there." So you could take, for example, a, a uh, airplane and fly it off the coast somewhere into international airspace, and then say, "Go to you know 
go to London and deliver this package. And you could have the thing land on a, on a uh, you know, some back pier somewhere, uh, come in over the water so it's relatively safe, and drop off a package. And you could do, you could basically do FedEx without having to deal with the, uh, uh, you know, the, the hub and spoke principle by basically saying, it's a peer-to-peer -peer package system. You, we will give you a Google map that shows where your package is right now, and we will tell you that it's going to show up in in two hours and thirty-seven minutes right down there at the pier. You could go pick it up, or we can you know courier it to to you or whatever it is. Uh, you do it with helicopters, and we can land it right in your building, like right on top of your building. It just sounds like a really really interesting thing. So the question is, how come it's not here? I mean, we've got the we've got uh, you know Penn State working on stuff. MIT is over at the MIT lab. They've got quadcopters doing you know chasing robots around. Pretty incredible. Stanford's got an amazing program. How come? What, what's the obstacle? How come it you know hasn't hasn't you know become a reality yet? Because you go and you look at the uh, uh, hobbyist community, and you can download. I, I decided one day I was, I'm a helicopter pilot. I fly these uh, helicopters, and I also fly model helicopters. So I was thinking, you know, I should just make a little project that teaches a model helicopter how to fly. And so I went out looking around. All right, there's, you know, a couple of people are working on it. No big deal. And I kind of thought about it, and then I basically put it away for, for maybe a year. I totally just didn't have time for the project. And I came back to it, and I look online, and suddenly there's four or five projects out there. Some guys have done, uh, uh, you know, downloadable code that you can get. You can buy a little Arduino board and, uh, you know, for 150 bucks and upload the sketch and have it fly, a, a, you know, a, a quadcopter or whatever it is. Some people are doing computer vision with this stuff. It was yeah, like it's unbelievable. Crazy. It's just amazing. And and then you have, uh, you know, all these other, the, the schools have their own projects and their own code bases. So there's there's a mountain of code out there. And suddenly it's this, you know, you know, you can get a machine up and going in five uh, five days. Yeah, yeah and if you, if you think about the the commercial problems of things like uh, filming being over a traffic accident sure. or a major event, there's a big fire or there's a, a big sporting event or something like that, and you've got you've got to put a helicopter in the air that's three quarters of a million dollars. You're paying a flight crew a thousand bucks an hour to fly the thing. Sure. So it's just massive costs. And think about being able to take, uh, you know, a, a quadcopter drone and put it over the same event with an HD camera, you know, streaming video real time. Yeah. The, the possibilities are endless. And the, the only reason it's not mm -hmm. happening here in the U S is our, uh, is the FAA. Yeah. So you can't, as you know, you can't fly, a, uh, you cannot fly a drone out of sight. I believe it's 500 feet is the most you can fly it. Yeah, and you can't fly it out of sight, out of line of sight. And and it, you know, you I understand the the safety implications are certainly there. If you fly something over a heavily populated area and it falls out of the sky, how do you keep it from killing somebody? Um, yeah. So there's there's very real concerns, and you don't want these things buzzing through regulated airspace and and all of those kinds of things. But the the commercial opportunity or just the the opportunity to eliminate to replace people with machines where it makes sense yeah uh, it's, we've talked about that concept a lot and this idea that that you could take something that costs you know 500 bucks maybe a thousand with a camera on it that's uh, and you and you fly it 100 feet or 200 feet off the deck and you're you're see you've got you could deploy you know a hundred of those for the same thing that it takes you to put you know put the helicopter in the air yeah 
So yeah, to me the the deal here is uh, the 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 benefit there is just flying many uh, yes. helicopters rather than just one. Yep. I mean, you get five different points of view on something. It's it's much better, and and you know it, it it actually helps a lot with reliability. So one you know you lose one, or one has to come back for more fuel, or whatever the thing is. You just have more assets in the air, and you have a better situational awareness. Yeah. Um, well, and you see the military. You know, military obviously is already making a heavy use of drones. You know, that's very yeah. well publicized. And, you know, whether it's in Afghanistan or wherever it is, I mean, we're using drones uh, just all over the place. Left and uh, right. Yeah. yeah to, mm-hmm. you know, shoot missiles or, you know, yep. kill people or whatever it is. So uh, yeah. it, it'll be interesting to me to see, uh, you know, what the, what the FAA, if they, uh, so what, 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 in your opinion, what are the things that have to happen for the FAA to start opening up, you know, whether it's a corridor in the airspace or what do you think it's going to take? Well, so, so let, me, let me just mention there's this one guy. Uh, uh, well, first of all, this is going to happen elsewhere in the world before it happens in the U.S., be my guess. Yes. Yep. Uh, this guy from, I think it's Switzerland, came over to the U.S. and uh, uh, has a, basically a little Delta Wing type airplane that, that flies, you know, extreme distances. Uh, and he flew this thing in New York. He basically flew it down the stanchion of the Verrazzano Narrows Bridge and, uh, you know, over, the, uh, over and under the Brooklyn Bridge and right by the, the Statue of Liberty Flame. And, you know, basically he was building surfing. It's unbelievable. He's got an HD video on YouTube. Um, I think it's called Black Sheep or something like that. And, and you can watch this and you sit there watching like, this is unbelievable. Yes. And then you sit there thinking... That's a little bit scary. Like if somebody's able to put a package of a few pounds pretty much what a, to whatever uh, GPS coordinates they want, then that's a dangerous thing. So, yes. so, the, so that has to be answered. And, and maybe there's don't a way... Don't you have the same problem with something coming you know, in on a container and uh, in on a container ship and somebody picking it up and you know, taking, a, taking a dirty bomb on their bicycle? Don't you have the same problem? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, it, 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 you, you could... Uh, like, I'm not going to see a robot rolling down a street. I'm going to see a guy on a bicycle rolling down a street and I can you know, find his uh, radiation signature or something like that. Sure. With a... With a uh, uh, um, unmanned aerial vehicle, it can go quickly and it can go autonomously and it can be undirected. You could basically program it to go to a certain place. So that has to be handled. Now I'm yes. sure that there will be, I don't have an answer, but mm. I'm sure that will be, you know, figured out at some point because frankly, the, the economic uh, uh, windfall that this kind of a thing uh, uh, promises is, is you cannot you have to see that that's a big deal. So I think the way it might happen is corridors. If the FAA opens corridors for this kind of thing to happen, I don't care if they go over water. You it know, doesn't it takes, matter. Takes off a pier, goes in a very inef- indirect, inefficient way out over the water at you know 500 feet or whatever the number is. You know, as long as those corridors are set up, it it I think that could do it. But you know, we'll see. It's we're we're way early in this industry. Yeah, I wonder um, if you couldn't even do something like 
where you you've got a you almost build a man-made island off of the coast mm-hmm. and yeah, that's interesting. maybe you do that something in uh something off the coast of say new york and massachusetts sure. or something like that and then one down in florida yeah because say. the other the other thing yeah you do one off of washington one off of new york one off of boston and you treat it yeah and you treat it like a you treat it like an airport yeah you've got to have you got to have clearance to land you've got to have an autonomous airport and then the other thing you can do is an autonomous boat which frankly has similar concerns right yes yes but absolutely you presumably it doesn't go nearly as quickly and uh you know it does introduce a little bit of hub and spoke into my you know uh, idealistic uh, view of a point-to-point package delivery system but that might do it i mean that's an interesting point i never thought about that actually that's 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 really interesting yeah, so if you could have if you could if you could keep them over water. Yeah. So even if you only did East Coast only and West Coast only. And let's and, say in and international over to Europe. Yes. So you're always over water. The things never they never cross land. Yeah. And they land somewhere on where, a barge. On a barge or whatever it is. You don't I mean you don't need obviously you don't need near the runway. I mean you need probably 50 100 feet to land yeah Yeah. and so any barge would do you you get the thing onto the barge you take the package off and and you ferry it to the you know over to the shore Mm -hmm. then you you figure it where it needs to go yeah exactly so you're able to do but think about the possibility of being able to do same day delivery to london or same day delivery to yeah you know and right now that's almost impossible i mean you got to pay a fortune to get fedex to do same day in in the u.s and it's because of the time change it's almost impossible to do it overseas yeah so you yeah, could launch can, something off the deck in New York at ten o'clock in the morning and have it in London by you know eight o'clock their time. Well, yeah, That's and it. even faster. I mean, there's no reason why you can't fly these things at five hundred miles an hour or or faster than the speed of sound too. Yeah. I mean, you know that that obviously adds adds cost, but uh, it's you know getting two hundred miles an hour out of a you know a device that's a thousand dollars is you know. Uh, that's approachable. That you could actually do that yep. uh, with with uh, you know turbines. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's an endlessly fascinating thing. But if we keep talking about it, we're never going to get to uh, one of my most favorite films of all time, which would have to be 1990s Hunt for Red October. Fantastic film. <laughs> Such a great movie. Such a great movie. It's Love the, the first. Music. Yeah, it's the first. Uh, first mo- first book of Tom Clancy's made into a movie. Oh, really, it was the first one. I That's, didn't realize that. Yeah, and as you know, as you know, Alec Baldwin played Jack Ryan, uh-huh. and that was the only time that he played Jack Ryan. Harrison Ford took over uh-huh. uh, soon after. I think the next movie was Clear and Present Danger, but That's I can't right. say that for sure. But yeah. I'm pretty sure it was, uh-huh. and which was also just an amazing movie. Yeah, uh, we could talk about that one at some <laughs> point too. But uh, so, what's uh, tell me uh, tell me your thoughts about Hunt for Red October? So Hunt, so so. Uh, uh, First of all, directed by uh, John John McTiernan and and Sean Connery, uh, who was a actually a sort of a last minute uh, uh, swap in, which which I thought was incredible. And they didn't tell Alec Baldwin, by the way, about what what this movie was about until after he was signed on and and things were going, um, which I th- think is very interesting. Um, I, I think so. So Hunt for Red October, the thing, uh, the uh, name comes from uh, October, the October Revolution, nineteen seventeen. This was a uh, uh, just a uh, film that 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 hangs on the 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 that scared feeling that we were talking about before. You just this unknown of the Cold War, and yes. I guess you kind of had to live through it to to you know 
understand it, but but uh, yeah, it, and you and I didn't really live through the height of it. I no, mean, yeah. If you, if you think yeah. about the Bay of Pigs and yeah, that whole that whole time where we had where we we had nuclear missiles pointed at us that were ninety you know ninety miles off our coast. Did you uh, ever see? Did you see Thirteen Days? That movie Thirteen yes. Days. Wow. Yeah. Great movie. That that put me on the edge, I man. That was like that must have been what it was like. But uh, you know, I, yeah. Well, obviously, I wasn't alive during that time that right. that happened. But, but. if you, the uh, but supposedly this the story takes place in 1984, mm-hmm. which is right in you and I's you know high school yeah. kind of time frame. And I remember, you know, everybody during that time. It was very clear, you know, the the you had the Russians, you had the Soviets, and you had the Americans. Yeah. <laughs> and every country on the planet was on one side or the other yep. of that of that coin. And this movie for me, I read the book a long time before I saw the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the book is just amazing. If you if you haven't read Tom Clancy's books, the the amount of the just the minutiae and the detail that he puts into his books, and he's just got this remarkable uh, skill for being able to spin an, a, an immense amount of technology into a tale and not have it be something where you kind of roll your eyes and don't understand it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> but the for the, for me this movie really captured the essence of the Cold War because the the plot of the movie is, you know, the Russians have built this or the Soviets have have built this sub that is essentially a stealth sub. So they've built this new catapult, uh, this new uh, caterpillar drive. Caterpillar drive yeah. that is a propulsion system that is virtually silent. It yeah. sounds like, it sounds like magma <laughs> and liquid hot magma and. And so we're gonna have the, to do that movie too. Yeah, the the plot of the movie is that this the commander of the sub, Victor uh, Ramius, uh, has uh, his wife has died a year earlier. He's a he's a you know he's a decorated sub submarine commander. He's taught all of the other Soviet sub commanders, and he's this decorated guy. And he is he gets appointed commander of this sub. And he immediately, as soon as he finds out what it can do, he plots to defect and turn the sub over to the Americans, which is, of course, just high treason yeah. uh, in all forms. And and I can't imagine, you know, had the scenario really happened, what you know the penalties might have been for failure, other than lots of torture and then death. And death. It's got to be. So the question is, w- did he really want to hand the sub over to the Americans, or did he just want to defect? Because I think he just wanted to fact, right? <laughs> Could be. Maybe this is just the vehicle that gets him there. Yeah. Right? yeah. Uh-huh. Maybe he doesn't care about the the Ameri- giving the Americans a leg up. But the, yeah. anyway, this sub is supposed to be able to park off of the American coast and launch a you know full scale nuclear attack before mm-hmm. the Americans can respond. That's really the the premise of the. It's really this strike first weapon. Yeah. And the music in this film is just absolutely stellar. And and I love the beginning, you know, you got that, what looks like this 286 laptop with an animated, you know, sub wireframe on it, (laughs) you know, with that he he closes it. It reminds me of this laptop that that I had 100,000 years ago. It's just so, so pitifully antiquated. Um, But it was, you know, the top technology uh, at the time. And the other thing is, you know, people at the time really didn't fly internationally as commonly. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So so actually taking a flight across the country was like, or across, you know, across the uh, ocean was like a 
more of a big deal. And the size of the glasses that they oh, wear. That was great. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely so I, great. Yeah, so I just rewatched this movie, um, uh, and and that just struck me. Yeah, like, and the other <laughs> so there was a couple of things. See, the movie starts with Jack Ryan flying from London, where he lives. Yeah. To meet with uh, Admiral Greer in you know, Langley, the CIA. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and the so that was really funny. You know, you've got everybody wearing these big glasses. You've got James Earl Jones, who actually is you know carries through to the rest of the Clancy movies. He's always Admiral Greer. Yeah, uh, but the. So that was great. My, I think one of the best scenes early in the movie is when they, when the when the sub launches out of the out of the docks in Russia, and the crew starts singing. Yeah, just an amazing scene. It really Absolutely is Absolutely amazing. Yeah. yeah, just. I actually, oh my gosh. yeah, uh, yeah, that, that does give you chills. Actually, it's but it, it's pretty funny because you you can pretty much tell when the actors sort of kind of stop singing and the uh, you know the the professional Russian choir sort of takes over the music. Yes. So it's just a little more tight, and you know yeah, it sounds exactly. a little more full, a little echo, a little reverb there. Um, Pretty amazing. So the the sub uh, the subs were done in this film. This is kind of a, a crossover time between digital animation. You know, if they did this nowadays, like all the subs would be just animated, and and that yes. would be it. Yep. They did this mostly with with miniatures and mockups and stuff. But they did use computers to do the uh, you know the hydrodynamic drive, the water coming out. It would kind of like f- you know fuzz up or like distort the the picture of the sub because you could see the water moving or yep, whatever and yep, the bubbles yep. and the particulates they show the uh, the shots from behind the sub with exactly. the prop turning and yeah. all that. so that stuff was that was computer generated everything else was models but the the models curiously were computer controlled so that they could get those turns real smooth and and you know just looking like they're underwater. They actually used uh, uh, smoke on the set to make the make it look like it was underwater. So that's it's, interesting. It's kind of like a really interesting uh, you know play between the two. And and one of the things, um, uh, Glenn, the guy that uh, uh, played uh, the commander of the Dallas, he, yes, he trained um, by assuming the identity of a submarine captain on board the the Houston, which was you know, basically the boat used for the Dallas. Um, and the, the crew took orders from him, the, the, uh, the actor, uh, because he was uh, being prompted by the actual commanding officer. So that's, that's how he got no into idea. it. Yeah. And he was, yeah. he was great. And I, the, one of my favorite characters in this movie is Jonesy, the sonar guy. Yes. Oh, absolutely. He's a great character. Yeah. Pavarotti, Paganini. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, yeah. was, it was fantastic. And, and here's, here's another thing about what Jonesy what Jonesy was doing and some of those uh, guys on acoustics were saying there was a minor flap after the film uh, debuted um, because during the Canyon run, uh, the, the crew, they actually had real submariners, you know, they, they hired them for this. They were calling out uh, various things and a, one of the things they said was uh, there was a milligal anomaly. And yes, and this was supposedly technology that was not that nobody knew this technology existed yet. Exactly. Right? This yes. was this was it was top secret technology. It was top secret at the time. This is a gravity meter. It's, a, it's a, that's the way these gravity meters are are uh, calib- you know uh, calibrated and uh, they or graduated I should say and uh, so it was 
you, you know, a way to to uh, measure uh, gravitational force very accurately uh, without using acoustics. So it was like a, a, a an actual flap in the the black projects slash submarine community that this billion dollar thing had been like uncovered by this movie, which I thought was uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, I imagine somebody probably got run up the flagpole for that one. Uh, yeah, yeah. One so. one thing I had a uh, question I had uh, in watching it this last time. So you know the uh, the DSRV that little sub docking yes. thing mm-hmm. that they could kind of hook onto. So they roll up to the Red October. They uh, they apparently connect on. How, first of all, did they have a universal docking collar with the Russians? Yeah, I gotta believe I, that that part was. I doubt that. that stretch right that and and. How did they know? How did the Red October know that the you know because so they 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 dock up with the thing and then the guy says you know can you hand me that hammer and he leans in and bang you know he hits the right. metal bangs on the bangs on the door. Who's gonna open the door? Like right. you're underwater. How did you even know that that was gonna happen? Like somebody just knocks and you open the door. That was yeah, the only. I, I, thought, I thought the most disbelievable part of that was the fact that the same dock would work on an american sub and yes. a soviet sub i yeah. mean the chances of that are just no almost yeah nil. no i mean because he was showing how how they made a docking collar like everybody made something that that made it at with a certain spec and then yes you know yeah you that's hook the that first to- part of the movie the guy the right. designer that does, they got his legs blown off or whatever yeah he's talking about what's gone into making this device work and how long it's taken it to get it so that it'll dock on american subs yeah and and then you know three quarters of the way through the movie this thing lands on a russian sub and no water leaks and it's yeah just perfect <laughs> just everything worked but <laughs> so but and they couldn't of course they couldn't come up to the surface because then that would blow the cover that the red october hadn't blown up and was still there yes um or you know what it just wouldn't work right and and it was also wouldn't be in the middle of the uh the you know torpe- torpedo thing that was going on at the time which w- this has got to be some of the most compelling uh uh scenes ever in a movie oh, just yeah. so they kept the tension that in 13 days i gotta keep coming back to that i love 13 days anyway so they they just they just they just held it yeah, i mean the seeking uh, those torpedo scenes where the torpedoes seeking and pinging yep and you know you the and the sound. guys are calling out you know 500 feet to impact yep. or 500 yards, yards to impact yeah. 400 yards to impact yeah. and you're just like oh my god what's gonna happen <laughs> we're all gonna die yeah it was incredibly well they like they really they they kept it up and they just did you know some of the some of the, the i have my i was taking notes as i'm um uh watching the show and uh you know there's all these sort of uh quotable lines slipped on his tea um yes. things like that and uh one of the one of my more favorite ones. So, who's giving the talk? You are. That's right. Yeah, I had <laughs> two. I had, yeah, I had two quotes from this movie that yeah. I thought were that were that were just really good. One is the second in command. You know, shows up. Uh, you know, or is talking to Colonel Ramius, and he's and he's talking about how he wants to live in Montana and yeah. marry a round American woman <laughs> and raise uh, rabbits. And then, and so he. <laughs> So you know, toward the end of the movie, he he of course gets shot, yeah, and and dies, and his and his parting words are, "I would have liked to have seen Montana," <laughs> and that's number one. And I thought a quote that I'd never caught before, yeah, uh, but but I caught it in catching up for for this show, is a line uh, Sean Connery's character, uh, you know, Colonel Ramius says, 40 years at war with no victories and no monuments, just mm. casualties." Mm. Yeah. 
And yeah, I hadn't ever caught that quote before, but uh-huh. it's, it, that was the Cold War. Yeah. Yeah. There, was never, yeah. there was never a war. Yeah. It was a, it was a game of high stakes poker. Bluff. Yeah. Uh-huh. Totally. And, <clears throat> and it's, so anyway, great movie. <laughs> really glad I'm uh, glad I watched it again. I got, I got I got one more quote for you. Okay. So they're flying along. It's it's rough. You know, it's rough. They're flying along in the helicopter whatever it is and uh, the the uh, the co-pilot or whatever leans back sees uh, Jack Ryan is not doing well. Just yeah. the things are not going going This is well. when they're flying out to the aircraft. Yeah, right? that's right. And so so he says you don't you don't like flying, huh? Oh, this is nothing. You should have been there with us five six months ago. We ran in this hailstorm over the Sea of Japan, right? Everybody's wrenching their guts out. The pilot shot <laughs> shot his right. lunch over the windshield. I barf on the radio, clogged it up completely, and it wasn't that lightweight stuff either. It's a chunky industrial <laughs> waste right. puke. And then he hands him a candy bar. and says, "Here, you want a bite?" Yeah, yeah, great, great scene. They're Perfect. actually flying out on a on a E two C Hawkeye. In that oh, scene. that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's I, you could. Definitely see like ex- exactly what would happen in the military. Exactly. Oh, yes. oh, and the yeah. other thing. So, so um, uh, Top Gun had come out, right? A little bit of history at the time. Top Gun had come out, and you know everybody's like, "Yeah, I want to go fly Top Gun." You know, Air Force, blah yeah. blah blah. This movie, they they actually the the Navy decided to help out and lend helicopters and subs and and all this stuff. You know, aircraft carrier like cutters all this yeah, it's, a, it's a story of the american navy i mean you see a little it bit is. of everything the navy can do in this movie yeah exactly and they did that because they wanted their top gun that's why it got green lit interesting because they were worried about exactly what happened there some kind of top secret something might get out and and you know they actually you know uh, higher up basically said no 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 let's let it go because we need our top gun that's I thought that was really cool. Thought yeah, they really wanted cool. people to be sailors instead of pilots. Totally, totally. And, and and you want to. You want to just sit there like riding around in a sub because it's so yeah, mysterious. not me, man. I got no desire really? to be in that environment. Oh, that uh, be, well, that's, brutal. Be, that's my version of hell right there. <laughs> it's brutal, but I got to say, it's it's you know it just has that mysterious, you know, mysterious allure to it. Because yeah. I got it. If I were to make a film, if I if I had some money and I was going to make a film, I you know I'd make a sub film because like it would just you there's so much you can do there it's 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 like a game of chess and you just can't see the pieces it's, yeah it's fantastic yeah, so i was watching this with my uh, i let my seven-year-old son watch the movie with me yeah and and the fu- the probably the funniest thing he said in the whole i mean he got maybe a quarter of the plot okay if that, yeah. right yeah but the funniest thing he said was well where are the windows so they can see the other the other ah, subs interesting and so we talked about okay, they use sonar, and we talked about the whole thing. But he couldn't get over how you could steer yeah. without windows. Flying and flying an airplane through the Alps without windows. Yeah, give me a yeah, map. He, you know. Yeah, he was just he was amazed by it. That's yeah, that's pretty crazy. All right, movie movie for next week. Uh, German films called Dumm uns Dumme. No, it's uh, Dumb and Dumber. Uh, yes. that, that'll be our movie for next week. Um, I'm gonna have to, you know, blame uh, blame Scott for this one. Uh, I didn't. Th- no, this is a great film. The problem is, it, it's not a great film. It's just infinitely quotable. Yes, Love it. I think it's it's, <laughs> it's a hilarious. It's probably it's it's the title of that movie could not be any more appropriate. Oh my word! Yeah, and it's it, but it is it is uh, in its day. It was one of it's it's probably for my money the funniest movie ever made, and yeah. <laughs> and so I think it'll be good to have a uh, to talk about you know something that's pretty light and yeah. and just a complete departure from the from the themes of the last few weeks. Well, that'll definitely do it. Indeed. So, 
So, uh, yeah, so, so uh, hey, find us online, uh, 350-third.com, 350-third.com, and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is 350-third. Um, search for us, leave comments on iTunes. Uh, you know how to get us there. And until next week, thanks for listening.